Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. Victors write history, as the old cliché goes. Over the past five centuries, European powers have found out across the world, conquering entire continents and writing self-serving accounts of those conquested while diminishing the merits of the conquered civilizations in order to justify their own depredations. Palestinians have been no exception to that rule. This week, we speak with Professor Salim Tamari, a Palestinian sociologist based in Ramallah, whose trailblazing work has illuminated the history of Palestine and the Levant prior to British and Zionist occupations from a perspective that is largely absent from Western narratives. More specifically, we discuss his book, The Year of Locust, an eloquent chronicle of the transition period that saw the end of Ottoman Empire in the Levant and the arrival of Western occupiers through the revealing lens of a rare personal diary kept by a young soldier fighting in the ranks of the Ottoman army. Khalil Bendib spoke with Professor Tamari. Professor Tamari, the book we're talking about today is titled The Year of the Locust. Tell us briefly why this title and what does it refer to? Well, the book is focused on the hard years of the First World War in Palestine, which were transformatory years, very dramatic and pivotal in changing the whole map of the political social and cultural scene in the Middle East. The year of the locust refers to the year 1915-16 when the locusts during the Great War attacked a number of Middle Eastern cities, particularly Jerusalem and Nablus, and consumed everything on the trees that were living. So they contributed very much to the uh, reinforcement of the big famine that took place in Mount Lebanon, in Syria and Palestine during the war. So the locusts compounded the impact of the famine, which was caused by both natural and military reasons. For example, the allies at the time, the British and the French, fighting against the Ottomans blockaded the the eastern lateral of the Mediterranean Sea and prevented food supplies from coming to the Arab provinces as a way of influencing the course of the war. So the locusts compounded with this blockade and with the military produced famine and led to immense devastation in especially in the cities of um, Beirut, Damascus, Jerusalem, and Jaffa. Why did you choose this uh, fellow of Ihsan Tarjman, whose short life, uh, after all, could seem inconsequential at first glance? And why a soldier? Typically, it is politicians or intellectuals who are the focus of uh, life stories, biographies. Is this part of, of the idea uh, championed by Howard Zinn in this country of a people's history rather than one always centered around um, elites and leaders? 
Uh, yes, to a large extent, this is true. Um, I have chosen, or maybe he chose me, I've chosen the diary of the soldiers who fought in the First World War because he was a, a simple soldier and he kept a diary and he wasn't at all coming from a prominent family or elite circles in Syria and Palestine, many of whom wrote memoirs, but very few people wrote diaries. And this is a soldier's diary of a private who had a very short life. He died, he was shot by his own officer towards the end of the war at the age of 23. He was 23 year old when he died. And he kept a daily diary which reflects the situation as he saw it in the city of Jerusalem, the city of his domicile. And as the war progressed and the devastation of taking young men to the fronts, the stoppage of food supplies, the attack of the locusts, the um, disappearance of many people in what is known as Sefer Berlik, which is a Turkish word uh, referring to conscription. So young people were taken to the fronts, never to be seen again. So the devastation of the war was enormous, not only in terms of its consequences, but also in terms of its daily toll on life in, in the cities of the Middle East. And the year of the locusts is emblematic of this uh, devastation. You had to do quite a bit of research and almost detective work to unearth these uh, really wonderful and unique documents. This uh, diary in particular, give us a brief account of how we managed to do that. Well, the diary itself was lost and somehow it uh, I found it in the Israel State Archives where the logs uh, show that it was taken as part of a war booty from a Prophet Street where the family of this young man was living. This happened in 1948 and the diary was written in 1915 to 1917. He was shot dead during the war in, just before the entry of Alambi, December uh, 1917. So the diary has remained unseen, untouched for all these years until the war of 48 led to the pillage of the house of Adel Beg uh, Turjman, who was the uncle of the soldier where the diary was kept, possibly without the knowledge of its inhabitants. We don't know if they were aware of this diary or not, but it was looted with the uh, containers of the apartment and deposited in the state archives uh, for people to look at it. So it was left untouched until a colleague of mine, a historian by the name of Adel Manah, came across it and brought it to my attention. So I requested a copy and I began the torturous process of decoding because part of the diary was written in code. He had used a simple code to hide some of his thoughts. But also I had the problem of finding who this man was because he did not leave his name on the diary. He did not give it a title. Of course, he died suddenly, so he had no possibility of editing or changing or addressing many of the uh, secrets 
to this diary. And what happened is I spent about a year and a half transcribing badly written diary, badly in the sense of his handwriting, because he, he was a relatively educated soldier, but his handwriting was not easy to read. And then I found we need to know who he was. So I traced him to three diary entries to another man who is the educator Khalil Sakakini, who was happened to be his teacher. And in one of these three entries, there is total correspondence between the name of the soldier and the observations made by his teacher, Sakakini, about the young man visiting him and discussing how he can escape the draft, meaning how Sakakini can escape the draft. And the advice given by this soldier of what he should do to get some intercession to make him escape being sent to the front. So this one entry helped me to decode and find the name of this soldier. We found from that that he lived in the old city next to the Haram. He belonged to the Turjman family. His um, family were translators in the Islamic court of Jerusalem. And he had a number of uh, brothers and sisters who survived him and from whom I was able finally to get some information about his birth. I got three or four pictures of him and I placed him in, within the genealogy of the Jerusalem families of that period. In your book, uh, The Year of the Locust, you make the point that Ottoman history has been erased in the telling of the story of Palestine. Tell us why this happened. How do we get to a point where such an important uh, facet of the history has basically been disappeared? Well, disappeared may be a, a strong word, but what happened is that with the entry of General Alambi to Jerusalem, and the allies, the Italians and the French and, and the Russians before that, who were allied with the British against the Ottomans and the Germans, they made every effort to expunge any residual features of Ottoman rule. And what helped him in that is that the harsh years of the war itself created an image of the Ottomans uh, which is very cruel harsh, devastating, and uh, full of a loss of lives as well as in material goods. However, the point I was trying to make is that before the war, the Arab provinces within the Ottoman state were highly decentralized in their rule. They had a great deal of autonomy. There was a thriving uh, relations between Anatolia and Syria. And Syria, of course, included all the Arab provinces that we call today Lebanon, Jordan, Palestine, and the Republic of Syria. So we're talking about a huge area, which in Arabic is called Bilad al-Sham, or Sham country. And the relationship between this country and Istanbul was very complicated, but not at all as portrayed by the Allies after the war as being a repressive regime that has ruled over and deprived the people of their liberty. Uh, 
and we have to remember that the Ottoman state was not necessarily a Turkish state. It was a Tur one of the few last remaining imperial domains which was truly multi-ethnical. It included Kurds, Armenians, Jews, Arabs, Syrians, Iraqis, as well as Anatolian Turks and Anatolian Kurds and people of the Balkan before they seceded who were the constituent elements of this regime which we have to remember had a constitutional revolution in 1908 which declared immense amount of liberties in terms of organization of the press, the uh, political parties, freedom of movement, and so on. So the Ottoman parliament during the second constitutional revolution became an arena for contestation of ideas of freedom and liberty, of democracy and socialism, of a liberal advocacy of self-determination and so on and so forth. So we're talking about a period which was highly dynamic, uh, full of uh, cultural production uh, and so on and so forth. And that is what I refer to as the silencing of the Ottomans by the war itself and the uh, subsequent division of the Arab states into small states um, controlled by the British and uh, French colonial powers, both in the Middle East and North Africa. When you refer to this period of Ottoman rule, give us a bracket of dates, because it depends on which part of the Arab world in Algeria it ended uh, abruptly in 1830 and Libya later. Tell us roughly how long the, the Turks were there as an empire, as a ruler. Within the Arab world, they were there for about 450 years, depending on which part of the Arab world you're talking about, but mostly more than four centuries. Uh, beginning with the era of Suleiman the Magnificent, who built the wall around Jerusalem, and lasting until the reign of Sultan Abdul Hamid, who was abdicated from the throne in 1909. So we're talking about 400 plus years of very productive, fertile, creative uh, period of cultural, artistic creativity, as well as repression. I mean, one should not paint a completely rosy picture because the Ottomans had periods of immensely dictatorial rule, but in general, they were known for periods of high religious liberties, productivity, and immense economic power through their fleet, which had uh, contributed greatly to the economy of Europe through Venetian trade and Genoa and Marseille and Manchester and so on and so forth. So we talk about a very complex period, which saw a great deal of tolerance, of legal reform, of coexistence between various communities, and we have to remember, was also a period of great deal of autonomy. These provinces all the way from Morocco in North Africa to Iraq and down to Yemen in South Arabia had a great deal of autonomy in ruling themselves. And the people who ruled them were 
mostly administrators who were their own kin. They, they spoke Arabic or Turkish or Kurdish in their respective communities. So there was a great deal of cultural autonomy as well, in which the language of the Ottomans was the language of the region in which they did. And there was a educational reform, which was a product of the first constitutional revolution, where the Ottomans began to establish new uh, Nizamiya or secular schools that spread not only in Anatolia but also through the Arab world. What year was this? Well, the first constitutional revolution was in the 1830s, so it must be 36 or 37, I can't remember. Mm. And the second constitutional revolution was in 1908. So we're talking about 100 years of what is known as the reforms, or they are called Tanzimat in, in Turkish. And they contributed very much to the overhauling of the infrastructure, the army, the bureaucracy, the postal system, and the introduction of railroads and telegraph, which revolutionized communication in the whole Middle East. Uh, some of your protagonists in the year of the locust considered themselves uh, variously uh, Turkish, Ottoman, Arab, depending on their ethnic origins, which were often mixed and varied. How does this uh, mosaic of ethnic and national identities figure into a place like Palestine before the arrival of Zionism, which flattened this rich landscape by imposing a Jewish nation-state model copied on modern European colonialism? Well, the heart of the diary that we're talking about is the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a true multi-ethnic city in which Jews, Muslims, Christians, but also ethno-linguistic communities like uh, Armenians. Armenians were there for 2,000 years. They were some of the earliest people living in the city. We have Copts, we have a huge uh, Ethiopian community around the sepulchre, and we have various Muslim migrant communities from North Africa as well as from Mali and Nigeria who were particularly seen as guardians of the Haram. There was a Mughrabi community, a huge Mughrabi community that had a neighborhood in its name. They call it Mughrabi meaning that it's Moroccan, although in Arabic refers to the whole North African region that includes Tunis, Morocco, and Algeria. Most of the Mughrabis or Moroccans in, in Jerusalem and in Palestine were Algerians, actually. They belong to your people. And some, of them, uh, some of them following the Emir Abdel Qadr when he was defeated by the French yes, and, and exiled to, to Syria. But, yeah. but uh, quite a few came as pilgrims before that. Mm. Some came after that, but Abdul Qadir actually brought with him a large number of Algerians uh, to the Holy Land and to, uh, to Damascus, to Syria and to Lebanon at the time. So these people were highly coexistent. There was there were periods of strife between them, but the strife occurred during periods of war. For example, when Brahim Pasha invaded Syria in um, 1831, 
on behalf of his father, the Khedevi Muhammad Ali, there was a civil war both in Lebanon and in Palestine. But aside from that, these communities had a great deal of coexistence in the Holy City as well as in Palestine as a whole. And that, of course, changed dramatically uh, during the mandate and after the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948. To quote your book, you say the concept of nation-state in the Levant. Uh, in Palestine, the Syrian provinces of the Ottoman regime, the war had the opposite effect on nationalism and national boundaries. It decisively undermined progress towards a multinational, multi-ethnic state and gave rise to narrow and exclusivist nationalist ideologies. Had Zionism not prevailed in Palestine, or at least prevailed until now, how were people seeing Palestine would evolve uh, as a nation or perhaps as part of a larger group of Arab nations? Well, it's very difficult to project, but it's a very important question because one should always imagine what things could have been as a way of guiding us to transcend the existing strife and oppression that we have before. It's not only in Palestine, but throughout the region. In 1917, which was the end of the war in southern Palestine, the consequence was clouded and poisoned by two interventions made by the Europeans. The first one was the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which divided the Middle East as a booty, as a loot between France and Britain, and they were supposed to also include Italy and Russia, but uh, Russia withdrew because of the Russian Revolution, and Italy was uh, seen by the Allies as too weak to be worthy of uh, this colonial patrimony, so they left the Italians to stew with all their own juices and <laughs> take over uh, Ethiopia. So they divided the Middle East between them using uh, a blue ink on a map, creating artificial boundaries that separated Syria from Lebanon and um, kept Palestine under the British mandate. Transjordan was given to Britain, Iraq was given to Britain, Syria and Lebanon became the domains of France, as was much of the western part of North Africa. So you have this first decision to divide the Middle East between them on the basis of presumed ethnicity. They created ethnic boundaries which did not exist. They created religious boundaries which were denominational and now became sectarian. And then there was the Balfour Declaration, 1916-1917, which promised the Holy Land as a national home for the Jews by the British imperial state. And this happened actually against the will not only of the Arab population, but against large number, perhaps a majority of the Jewish population themselves, who both in Europe and, and, and in Palestine mm. saw themselves as part of other entities. I mean, the, the emancipatory movement of the Jews 
in Western Europe after the Napoleonic period began to look at itself as aiming at social progress, integration, liberation from uh, anti-Semitism as well as from dictatorship. So the Jews were very active in radical and reformist movement, both in Poland and Russia in the East, as well as in France, Belgium, uh, Holland, uh, and Britain. So the Jews now were seen as part of a scheme to alienate, in the eyes of the British, Palestine from its own inhabitants and create a European Jewish state that was not necessarily of the region or by the region. And that was the second intervention that destabilized the whole region and continues to do so until today. The first time I became aware of this initial opposition of majority of Jews worldwide to Zionism, I was completely unaware of it, was through um, this friendship I had with a Palestinian-American publisher, a small magazine, his name was Jorhayek, who had piles, actually entire boxes of this beautifully produced and expensive-looking book. The name was The Zionist Connection, What Price? Peace, by Alfred M. Lilienthal. Given an extensive, comprehensive history of this initial reaction to Zionism, and of course, this book, Mr. Hayek had boxes of them because they had they had been censored. They had been taken off the shelves <laughs> from bookstores across the country. And David Lowenthal just given whoever was interested these these uh, numbers of books. It was an amazing realization for me to imagine a pre nineteen sixty seven pre nineteen forty eight world Jewry that was horrified by the idea of a, or, or at least embarrassed by the idea of, of a Jewish state. Yes, I mean, you're absolutely right in that one forgets the immense convictions among the majority of Jews against Zionism, which today sounds uh, phenomenal, given that now, of course, you have many European governments, and here in the US, you have many congressmen, uh, and media people who portray anti-Zionism as a form of anti-Semitism. I mean, in those days, the vanguard of the anti-Zionists were uh, Jewish liberals, Jewish socialists, as well as uh, Jewish nationals of the European countries who wanted, who saw the freedom of the Jews from anti-Semitism and from autocracy in becoming uh, integrated in the various movements for social liberation that was uh, bubbling all over. I mean, not only in socialist movement in Eastern Europe, but in liberal constitutional movements, in the press, in creative activities, in which the Jews were very prominent in much of uh, Western Europe at the time. They saw Zionism as a trap I'm not saying this as an exaggeration, but Zionism was seen as the product of particularly bad experience of the Russian and Polish Jewish communities in their struggle against repression. It was a minority view, which was started by Palitzion in, in Russia and by 
the general Zionists and labor Zionists in Vienna, uh, all in Eastern Europe, who thought the only way to escape from the repression of the Jews was to create a state of their own, not necessarily in Palestine, but a state of their own. And the vast majority of Jews saw this as a trap, as I said, trap because it meant that they would put the Jews in one place where they can be even further oppressed by uh, the autocratic government of the time. Instead, they fought for socialism, uh, for democracy, for social democracy, and in the case of Western Europe, they were very active in general liberal uh, causes. This is true of highly integrated Jews and also Jews who were not integrated but who wanted to see their emancipation as part of the general emancipation of uh, European people from these uh, dictatorial regimes. Yes, it was seen also as a threat to the hard-won freedoms and battles that they had managed to finally overcome part of the anti-Semitism in Europe, and this was uh, threatening to to bring them back as this alien group who never really quite belonged in the countries that they came from. We have to remember that during the rise of fascism, before the Second World War, both in Germany and in Italy, many Jews became, had a lot of pressure on them to leave, and even those who were inclined to the Zionists did not want to go to Palestine. They wanted to go to Australia, Canada, and the U.S., particularly the U.S. And it took a great deal of arm wrestling or arm twisting to convince the Canadian and American government, to some extent the Australian one, that they should not welcome these Jews because the place of these Jews should be Palestine. And many of the governments actually were won over to this highly unethical position, not because they supported Zionism, but because they thought the creation of a Jewish state, supported by the West, would be a very good instrument of Western policy, would be like a safe base, like a military outpost, which would help. And I'm saying this before the uh, crystallization of Nazism and the, the horrors created, but they thought that the creation of a, a Jewish state in, in the Middle East would be a good instrument for a British or American uh, or, or Western European uh, strategy. And that was a factor why they supported it, rather than any sympathy with the Jews in their flight from fascism in Europe. And that is prominent Palestinian sociologist Salim Tomari speaking with Khalil Bendib about his book, The Year of the Locust, an eloquent chronicle of the transition period that saw the end of the Ottoman Empire in the Levant and the arrival of Western occupiers through the revealing lens of a rare personal diary kept by a young soldier fighting the ranks of the Ottoman army. We'll hear more after a break from Pacifica Radio. This is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
you know, one of the big takeaways for me from this wonderful book called The Year of the Locust is the place that the question of nation-state takes. This kaleidoscope of different political identities that people in Palestine seem, or at least Jerusalem, uh, seem to have, depending on period of history and political fashion, and then this all of a sudden this straight jacket of the notion of nation-state, which also limited a lot of the modern European states. You used to have five or six languages in France, Britain, uh, uh, Corsican, etc. In Spain, we still have Catalonia trying to fight for its culture and its language. Other than this existential menace of Jewish, uh, virulent Jewish nationalism in Palestine, how was this concept of nation-state, what was its relevance around the turn of the century, about a hundred years ago, for Palestine? Well, it's a very important question, because as the war came to an end, people were wondering where they would go. And there was indeed a feeling that the rebellion by the Arabs against the Ottomans, which were partly supported by the British, partly engineered by the British and the French, should go in the direction of creating an Arab state, a state for the Arabs. So there was a genuine feeling that the end of the war should bring freedom for the Arabs as well as their own domain. So there will be a Republic of Turkey established on the debris of the Ottoman state. And as the Greeks and the Balkans had their independence before that, the Arabs now, it's their turn. So within that, there was a different strategy for the, for the allies, which is to create a sub-national entities. And the sub-national entities, which now were called Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, were not, of course, invented from nothing. There were people and regions with those names. But they did not think of themselves as a separate nationality. That's the point. That's a very important point. The creation of states based on putative boundaries, serving the oil interest, the commercial interest of the British and the French and the other European governments, created this mosaic, if you like, of statelets with rabid national feeling that was supported by religion. So the sectarian tendencies, and this is the worst part of it, which were dormant throughout Ottoman rule, and they flared up occasionally, of course, I mean, in the civil war of 1816, Mount Lebanon, there were disturbances in Syria, and Iraq, but nothing, nothing at all like what we have today between Shiism and Sunnis and Maronites in Mount Lebanon. These were compounded by this lethal combination of nationalist revivalism and religious sectarianism. Sometimes they go together, sometimes they go against each other, but that played a big role in my view and you, you can see this, the beginning of this in the diary that I published, as a way of reinforcing, I mean, 
to put it crudely, it's divide and rule, but it's it's much more than divide and rule. It's it's reinforcing feelings among the populations of the Middle East that were seen by the Allies as essentialist identities of Jews, Arabs, Shiites, Sunnis, uh, Kurds, uh, uh, etc., etc. I, I say essentialist because they essentialized people's various identities into one of national ethnic form. And that is the lethal investment which these governments infused and led to the great devastation that we see today in Syria, Iraq, Yemen, in Libya, and before that, of course, in Palestine. And this has been, as you mentioned, a leading uh, principle of, of colonialists, uh, whether it's Great Britain or France or others, to look for the division, the potential division and find uh, whatever they found a nuance in lang language or, or religion to make that an issue and to separate people along those lines. We've seen it in Algeria, where I come from, where they first started along the religion. They extracted the, the Algerian Jews from the rest of Algeria by granting them citizenship, full French citizenship, and not the rest of, of the native population. Not content with that, they tried to divide the rest of the majority, which was Muslim, along linguistic lines by deciding, okay, here we have the Berbers on this side, and then there we have the Arabs on the other side. So I think it's not too crude to actually use that term, divide and rule. And that's what they've kept doing, even after exiting. They, as you were saying earlier, they made sure that the borderlines between statelets, as you call them, were artificial, so that there would always be strife between these two halves of nations and always disagreements. Uh, I cannot think personally of any two countries that used to be under colonial rule that do not have a border problem. It's not just in the Levant. In Algeria and Morocco, we continue to suffer from that, to a lesser extent between Algeria and Tunisia, etc., etc. Your protagonist, Ihsan Tarjman, and Tarjman in Arabic just means that, it means a translator. Ihsan Tarjman comments on the future of Palestine in a moment of flux when the Ottoman Empire was coming to an end and reflects the many possibilities that were considered at the time, a future with Syria or one with Egypt. Arabism had been born. Tell us more about this transition period uh, before the Zionist project came to predominate. What was the general atmosphere, the general hope? I mean, you've already told us some, but if you would tell us a little bit more on that, since it's sort of uh, central to your your story and to the diary that you published of Mr. Hassan Tojman. This is very interesting because it's unexpected. In one of his entries, this soldier was echoing the kind of debate that were going on among the officers and soldiers of the garrison in Jerusalem. And from it, we know that there was heavy debate about where the country is going. It's surprisingly frank because you would think there would be political censorship and so on, but of course he was writing a diary, so he was very open about reflecting what was going on. And he says, 
where are we heading after this war? Um, and then he mentions three possibilities. One is the country would be an autonomous region within the Ottoman state, which was a, a great possibility if the Ottomans were not defeated, uh, they and their German allies. Second, we will have a Arab state under uh, Prince Faisal, the son of the Sharif of Mecca, with its headquarters being in, in Damascus. Damascus would be the, the capital of a new Arab state, extending all the way from Aleppo in the north to Arish in the south, including parts of the Sinai Peninsula. And then he mentions the third one, which he favors, and he says this is something that the officers he was talking to thought was the natural outcome of the war, which is very surprising because somehow we don't think of it today as a possibility. Namely, that Palestine would become part of Egypt, or there will be a Khedabal union between the Egyptian state and the country of Palestine under Egyptian rule. Now, this was very surprising because, of course, they were fighting against the Egyptians, but it reflects a very important observation that prevailed at that time, but not today. That uh, refers to the fact that Egypt was the center of the Arab press. There was a lot of music and literature coming from Egypt, and of course trade. And Egypt was the country which ruled over Palestine for only 10 years when Muhammad Ali and his son Brahim Pasha occupied Syria between 1831-1842. So were 10 years, and they made major changes in the in the topology and the contours of the country. They introduced uh, new legal systems, new taxation forms, and so on and so forth. So, in people's eyes, it was very natural that Palestine and Egypt would become one country. And, of course, this was a passing observation by him, but totally uh, contrary to what you would think today would be happening. But it was debated at the time as one real possibility. And I thought that was very interesting. One aspect of this history that always surprised me as an Algerian whose knowledge of the history of the Levant is very limited, was the profound sense of betrayal that Turks harbored vis-à-vis -vis their former Arab subjects after the fall of the sick man of Europe. It's always surprised me because growing up in Algeria in this period of Arab nationalism, when Gamal Abdel Nasser was still alive and still in power, right around the time of the six-day war, my feeling was that the Turks had betrayed the Arabs, not the other way around, having such close relations with, with Israel. Tell us a little bit about this history of uh, the Turks feeling betrayed by the Arabs. That's a very interesting observation, actually, because, as you say, we grew up in our schooling system and in the nationalist historiography of the modern Middle East, of thinking that the Arabs were betrayed by the Turks because they insisted on imposing the war measures of Jamal Pasha and his dictatorship, and in the way in which they imposed 
the conscription on Arabs to fight in Gallipoli and in the Russian border known as Ezrum and in southern Iraq and Yemen. So there was this notion of betrayal became part of the nationalist Arab historiography of the period. And it's very interesting that when you look at the writings of Turkish uh, historians, you get exactly the, the reverse of this, that the, the betrayal was done not by the Turks, but by the Arabs, because it was the Arabs who allied themselves with the rebellion of Sharif Hussein in, in Hejaz, in Mecca, and in their view, they stabbed us in the back, because as the Ottomans were fighting the enemies of Islam on the Russian borders, against uh, Italy and France and Britain and the Italians in Libya, of course, because uh, Libya had become a target of uh, Italian colonialism. The Ottomans, under the leadership of Jamal Pasha and Enver Pasha, were fighting against these colonial wars at the time. And then comes Sharif Hussein, allies himself with the Syrian nationalists, and they stab in the back. They start blowing up trains, as you know, from um, popular culture, the story of Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence of Arabia, yes. In their eyes, it was the Arabs who stabbed them in the back as the war was going on. And, of course, I mean, this is a perspective, but it's a very important perspective, because remember that one-third of the Ottoman army was made up of Arabs. There was a million um, soldiers in the Eastern Front, and 350,000 of those were Arabs fighting with the Turks and the Kurds uh, against the Western Allies. And so when the Arab rebellion took place, it was joined by tens of thousands of people, but there were hundreds of thousands still fighting on the Ottoman side. And this is a very important observation to keep in mind. The vast majority of Arab soldiers were fighting on the other side. They thought of Istanbul, of the Ottoman state, as their state. They thought of the Brits and the French and the Italians as their enemies. So the rebellion of Sharif Hussein was a changeover of this perspective, but one that did not win the vast majority of the Arabs who were fighting with the Ottomans. It was the military defeat of the Ottomans that finally decided this war and led to the uh, demobilization of the Arab soldiers who were fighting on the other side. So we have to keep that in mind. But of course now with the writing of history, you hear as if the hatred between the Arabs and the Turks were from time immemorial, which is not true at all. Just as we read in popular in the media that somehow Jews and Arabs have always been at loggers' heads, when that's uh, the furthest from the truth as well. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I mean, not only the Arabs and the Jews were not, not fighting each other, but a great majority of the Jews in Iraq and Syria and Lebanon and to a large extent in Palestine, but mostly in Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon, were themselves Arabs. They were exactly. what we call a Arab Jews. And this is sounds like an oxymoron today, but that's what they were. Their language was Arabic, they were part of their society, and so on and so forth. They were not always happy with their status, but 
so were the Christians and Muslims. They were not happy with their status in many of these regimes, but they did not fight a denominational, sectarian, religious war with each other. There was a great deal of acculturation, integrated space, syncretic religious practices, visitation to saints, shrines, which were common to Jews, Muslims, and Christians. And some of them are still there today. Uh, but, of course, that's another story, because the war, Zionism, the military defeat of the Ottomans led to the emergence of the new nation-states that you referred to, and the bitter, bitter sectarian conflicts whose effects we are still paying until today. I'll add to that that in Algeria and the Maghreb in general, two layers of this divide and conquer have been imposed. First of all, the French deciding, especially in Algeria certainly, the deciding that the Jews were different and more worthy of being assimilated, perhaps because they were a minority. But as if that were not enough, the clash between Israel and the Arab uh, native populations, and that was the coup de grace for that separation between Algerian Jews and the rest of the Algerians. Because, again, Zionism posited itself as the savior, as the one place for Jews that needs to be protected, etc., at any cost. As a last question, I would like to ask this vast, <laughs> vast question. And it's one that has always haunted me throughout the years, ever since 1967, when I became, as a young child, aware of all these problems. When I first became aware that Algeria's independence was not the last of that history of colonialism in the Arab world, and that Palestine was still under colonialism. It's a complex question, but how could a disparate group of people hailing from all over the world and speaking different languages arrive in a place like Palestine and defeat and displace a rooted native population, such as the Palestinians, to the point of claiming that it didn't even really exist, as per Goldemeyer's infamous quote, there is no such thing as a Palestinian people. In other words, how could such a disparate group of populations be more cohesive than a group that speaks the same language, uh, by and large, and has lived together for centuries, if not millennia? How did the concept of nation-state agree with Zionism in a way that it seems to have disagreed with Arab nationalism? That's a very important question, I think. I'm not sure I can answer it to your satisfaction, but... Uh, I can suggest a few things which, first, the victory of Zionism is not a unique event in history. I mean, you have a lot of vanquished people in Armenia and Kurdistan, of course, in the New World with the indigenous population who were vanquished, they were defeated, they were obliterated. In some cases, they totally disappeared. Or in many others, the residue of these people the problem with the Palestinians, if that's a problem, is that they did not disappear, they remained. But the victory of the Zionists was, you put your finger on a very important aspect. People think of Zionism, in the Arab world it is very common, as an instrument of Western policy and not a movement which has its own volition. 
There's no question that Zionism was a very successful movement. And the success was partly due to the extremely skilled maneuvering of its early leadership in Eastern Europe, as well as in Palestine, but also because of the conditions which accompanied its growth, and that is fascism. I think the, the rise of fascism in Europe and then the, the, the Nazism of the German state were catalysts which made many people think of seeking a exclusive national solution. And of course, this divided the Jewish population. They were not at all united on this issue, but it was a factor that facilitated this. So I would say the organizational clarity, organizational dexterity, organizational skills of the early leaders of labor Zionism, not the religious group, but the labor Zionists, as well as the instrumentalization of the Jewish state by Western powers, galvanized a lot of Jewish intellectuals in that direction and made them deeply aware of what is more important and what is less important. So they could not peripheralize their objective. And this is something the Arabs never learned, never learned how to deal with. And the other thing which uh, actually, this is not the right time to, to discuss, but just to introduce it as an idea, the cultural integrating skills through military and cultural means of the Zionist movement, of creating a Hebraic community from highly disparate uh, components, both Sephardic and Ashkenazi, both Arab, Jewish, and Yiddish-speaking groups, creating two instruments of the Israeli military as well as the instrumentalization of the Hebrew language uh, and its transition from a sacred tongue to the uses of uh, everyday life were crucial elements, I believe, in this integration. Now, this is not a, a proper answer to your question, but I think it contains elements of seeing why Zionism was different than other colonial movements in that period. Certainly different than its uh, counterpart in the Arab world, because I grew up hearing that this was a clash between Arab nationalism on the one hand and Jewish nationalism on the other, as if that symmetry was <laughs> a simple, yeah. a simple thing. Lastly, I mean, if nationalism is not necessarily the correct model for organizing a complex area such as the Levant. What would be an alternative model that might be more viable in the long term, viable in the face of the massive hegemony of foreign settler colonialism? Well, if I knew the answer to that, I would not be talking to you. <laughs> 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 okay. I don't think uh, we can dream of a return to the multi, um, right. to multi-ethnic, yes. multi-national yes. ideas. But, uh, I mean, there is a a vision which can be inspired by that historical past. It's something that combines the European Union, the Ottoman state, and the liberation movements 
of social democracy that spread in the 19th century. So a combination of those, I think, would give us some hope that the nationalist morass in which we are in might be circumvented at one point. Professor Salim Tomari is a sociologist and the author of Year of the Locust, A Soldier's Diary and the Erasure of Palestine's Ottoman Past. He has authored several works on urban culture, political sociology, biography, and social history. He is the editor of Jerusalem Quarterly. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, and thank you for listening.